tonight. If, if I did it correctly this time, you should have received an attachment on your email and hopefully got the rest of the notes for this week. Um, if you did not, please let me know. I'll try again. But we are talking about the doctrine of angels and demons. And last week we talked about angels mostly, um, talked about their role. And I just want to kind of say up front as sort of a re, uh, uh, just a reminder, review from, from what we talked about last week that uh, we know that angels were created. We don't know exactly when. We know that angels serve God. We don't know everything that they do, but they are helpful to those who serve God, and they are helpful to us as the heirs of salvation. Uh, we know that there's a hierarchy, a, a variety of different kinds of angels, seraphs and cherubs and princes and thrones and mites and dominions and sons of God and all uh, living creatures and many other uh, words are used to describe heavenly beings. Uh, we don't know what all of them do, but some of them we can guess. Gabriel seems to be some sort of messenger. Michael seems to have a special relationship with Israel. Uh, we know that angels are holy, glorious beings, greater in power and might than human beings. We know that angels are um, able to make themselves visible. People see them. We were even told in some parts, or I think it's in Hebrews, that uh, some have entertained angels unawares, have not even known that they've been uh, hosting angelic beings in their midst. We know that it is absolutely forbidden to worship, to pray, to any, to any angel. Mom, Mom, we know that angels are subservient to Jesus Christ and worship him. Church, church. We, we know that angels carry out some of God's judgments. We see that in the Old Testament stories of Sodom Gomorrah. We see it in other places as well. And we know that angels are particularly going to be very much involved in the return of Jesus Christ. They're all over the book of Revelation. They're all over Jesus' own prophecies concerning the coming of the kingdom. And they were the ones that announced that Christ would return. Remember Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is ascending into heaven, it is the angels who say, why stand you here looking up? This same Jesus shall come again in like manner. So angels will be very much a part of the final consummation of the kingdom of God. Now, we got a question last week, just as we were, just as we were closing uh, the class up last week, we were winding down, and someone asked a question about angels and gender. And I promised to look into that and to respond to that uh, tonight. So I want to do that before we go any further. I read more this week about angels and gender than I've read in my entire life, uh, which is saying quite a bit, because I've read quite a lot. But um, there is no specific scripture which deals directly with the gender of angels. In most cases where angels are mentioned, uh, no gender is indicated. On those occasions where gender is indicated, it is always masculine. It's always a man or the appearance of a man. Uh, the only possible exception I could find is in a vision of Zechariah, where he saw two women with wings carrying a basket full of iniquity from Judah to Babylon. However, those women with wings... 
uh, were not identified as angels. The word for angel, the Hebrew word for angel, uh, which is malak, was not um, used in that case. So I think we can say with some credibility that whenever the gender of an angel is dealt with scripturally, it's always male. Now, the second part of that question had to do with whether or not we could use that as some sort of indicator or some sort of criteria for determining whether we're dealing with an angel or a demon or an evil spirit, with the thought being that if it's a feminine form, the spirit's appearing in feminine form, then it's some sort of deception or some sort of... uh, uh, attempt to corrupt. I don't have anything scripturally that would support that. It simply never comes up in the Bible. However, yeah, if if you think of some of the so-called visitations or manifestations, uh, I know there's some very famous appearances supposedly by the Virgin Mary or a spirit claiming to be the Virgin Mary. There's other appearances in other situations. Um, I don't know that the feminine aspect is what should worry us there. I think we can we have a criteria for determining the veracity of, of spirits, of testing the spirits, and that is... Uh, whether their message is compatible with the gospel of Christ. And so I would not add any further criteria. I would not attempt to try to use anything that's not biblical. If an angel appears to you and says something to you that is contrary to the gospel of Christ, it doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman or a snake or a bee, if it's contrary to the gospel of Christ, it is a uh, it is not a good messenger from God. So I don't have much more on that subject, but uh, if that does not satisfy the question, I'll throw open the conversation to the, the gathering tonight if anyone else has a thought on it. If anybody else wants to speak to angels and genders? Bishop, okay, yes. Uh, we are told in God's word to be be careful of how we treat people least. We entertain angels unaware. Is we that are? correct? Yes, Hebrews thirteen. <laughs> so, in this modern time, is it possible? that I could have a visit by somebody that's female and have no clue that's an angel with a good message. Or we need to take the other end that Satan could even appear as an angel of light. So you have both ends of the spectrum. If we accept, and this is where, you know, as always, I hesitate to go beyond Scripture. And that's always my, my worry, is that the Scriptures are silent. We really shouldn't speak um, decisively. Uh, but if we accept the concept that angels are by, uh, in their created, in original created condition, are masculine, then any spirit that claims to be an angel that appears in a feminine form would be, by definition, a deception. But the scriptures just don't go that far. There's, I can't point at any example uh, and say that that is the case. So I would say the criteria we should use should not be dependent on gender. There's other criteria that we can use to determine if someone is truly of God or not, or if a spirit is from God or not. 
I don't know that gender should be part of our uh, checklist. Um, I got you. If what the person says is in agreement and is compatible with the gospel of Christ and glorifies Jesus, I can I would I can't see any reason to refuse it or reject it. If it does not, and if we go back to the the so-called Virgin Mary appearances, I, I'm not as schooled in these as maybe some others, but uh, I can remember at least one. I want to say Spain. Uh, Our Lady of Fatima, I believe, is what it's called. Lady of Lourdes. Yeah. Uh, or maybe it's Lords. I think that might be France. Yeah. yeah. Um, where in one of those cases, I believe, and if I've got this wrong, I, I apologize, but it's been, you know, 20 years since I worried about the Virgin Mary. <laughs> um, in one of these cases, some prophecies were given concerning some judgments, some things that were going to happen, and one of the ways to uh, prevent these judgments or one of the ways to to keep these things from happening was to build a shrine and, and um, worship and have devotions to the Virgin Mary. Basically, the Virgin Mary was supposedly... Um, upset because she wasn't being venerated properly by the people and therefore judgment was going to come on the land. Uh, You don't need the feminine aspect of that to recognize that as a false prophecy. First of all, no genuine angel would allow anyone to build a shrine to worship to pray to them, to have any sort of devotion to them. So uh, whether the spirit was female or male in that case, in either case, that would be a clear sign. The angel or the spirit accepting worship would disqualify them more so than whether it's male or female. Um, So I, I just, there's only so far we can go down that road scripturally and the scriptural criteria don't mention gender they simply mentioned as i said compatibility with the gospel of christ the glorification of jesus and if you look at the situation in the book of revelation each time john started to bow down and and worship his uh angelic host uh he was told not to do it to worship only christ so if a spirit appears to you and tells you bad things are going to happen to you and your family, unless you bring an offering or unless you build them an altar, you're dealing with a demon. You're not dealing with an angel of God. Anyone else on that? Amen. Amen. I got it, Bishop. Good, good night, sir. How are you? I am well. Good. Now, in, in Genesis, the sixth chapter, and let, let me just read a couple of verses here for you, and, and if you could shed some light on this for me, I would appreciate it. It says in the first verse of the sixth chapter, Genesis, and it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And verse 4 says, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of all men of renown. Is it, would, it, would it be possible for you to shed some light on that for me? If, if not, we could always table that until another time. Okay. The Genesis 6 question has uh, never been satisfactorily answered, as far as I know. Um, let, let's start at the beginning. So the scriptures don't actually give us 
the exact origin of demons or evil spirits. They, you know, most Pentecostal theologians uh, tend to fall into the category of regarding them as fallen spirits, fallen angels, who were originally part of God's good creation, originally part of the invisible heavenly realm. So the question becomes, what caused them to fall? And that's where Genesis 6, Job 15, Luke chapter 10, 2 Peter chapter 2, Jude chapter 6, all of these passages mention or refer to uh, the sin of angels or the fall of angels, uh, either directly or, or indirectly. The big question, the ultimate question is, how to interpret the phrase, the sons of God. And it's only other appearances in the Old Testament. It's used to describe heavenly beings, angel beings. So is that the case in Genesis 6? Possibly. There are, however, some issues, and they're serious issues, and this is where the mystery comes in. One of those issues has to do with just basic biology. We are told that angels do not marry or they're not given in marriage in their original condition. This may mean they're not capable of procreation. Um, if they were capable of procreation, in order for there to be offspring, viable offspring, angels and human beings would have to be close enough uh, DNA-wise, close enough biologically, to be able to produce an offspring. In other words, we'd have to be basically of the same type of species. I'll just give you an example. A horse and a donkey can produce an offspring. A horse and a cow cannot. So if angels are able to procreate with humans, then angels and humans are very closely related. And there's nothing in the Bible that would really support uh, that idea. So it is a mystery. It's a great mystery as to what this verse and passage actually is referring to. Is this part of the fall of the angels? Was there desire for procreation, the reason why some of them didn't keep their first estate? Jude talks about them going after strange flesh like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah did. Second Peter talks about them not keeping their first estate. It's, it's I guess you could say it's, it's one of those mysteries which will probably always be a mystery until we're in the kingdom of God. Now, alternative readings, alternative explanations have been offered over the years, uh, some suggesting the line of Seth, some suggesting uh, a, a cohabitation between different species of human, like uh, Homo sapien and Neanderthal, some suggesting uh, that these sons of God were the, 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 the kings, the princes of their time. All of those possibilities are not any more likely or any more unlikely than any other. This is one of those areas of Scripture where there's just not enough information to teach dogmatically. However, in reading it, we learn two things. One, that there was a mixing together of some of two different lines that should not have been mixed. And two, that the product of this mixing was uh, a great wickedness and a great caused a great wickedness and a great violence in the land. And that is where some, you may have come across this. I can't remember if it was Schofield. I can't remember. I got to, I've, I've misplaced my Schofield Bible. I, I've got to go figure out where I left it. 
I might have loaned it to somebody, but um, you may have come across an idea that demons are the the disembodied spirits of these offspring of the so-called sons of God and daughters of men. That is an extra-biblical theory. That is not anything that is derived from the scriptures themselves. We're never really told how demons became demons. We are told that angels fell. We are told that angels were subject to temptation and sin. We are told that the devil and his angels led a rebellion in heaven. We are told that um, at least some of these wicked angels were so wicked and so destructive that they've actually been chained up and actually been um, uh, imprisoned. They're not even allowed to to run about uh, on the earth. So uh, how demons came to be just is never made real clear, nor is it made real clear how it would be possible for these sons of God, if they are angels, to have been able to procreate with these human women. So unfortunately, unless you want to get into pure speculation, uh, there's just no real good answer that's going to satisfy all of our curiosity. And, And let me say here, the scriptures were not written to satisfy our curiosity about angels or demons. Angels and demons are secondary characters in scriptures. Their only significance, their only real significance, is how they relate to the story of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the object. The scriptures were written to tell us about Jesus, not every detail about the creatures of of heaven or earth. So uh, as much as we can, we should have a working knowledge. We should not be ignorant. We should have a, a foundational understanding of angels and demons so that we can uh, understand their role and, and be able to test the spirits and be able to try the spirits. But beyond that, There's a much about these creatures that's mysterious and is always going to be mysterious. Uh, But the best guess I can give you is two types or two things mixed together in Genesis chapter 6 that should have never mixed together. And I'll let your imaginations take it from there. Anyone else want to speak to that? Um, Pastor, I just want to, um, I just want to clarify, like, evil, evil evil angels are the same as demons, because I'm looking here at, um, Psalm 78, where he talks about, um, he casts upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, and indignation, and trouble, by sending evil evil angels among them. Like, I can't think that um, you you would be sending in demons. So what is, is there a difference between demons and evil angels? Like, can you clarify? Um, Very possible. Again, and, and I know... You know, as a teacher, as a Bible scholar, as a theologian, my least favorite phrase in the English language is, I don't know. <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us how demons became demons. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about how and why the angels fell. Uh, in some passages that refer to the angels falling, it was pride. In some passages, it was lust. In some in in, he, in Revelation 12, it appears to be just the refusal to worship Christ. Now, 
your question goes to the issue of whether God would use a demon or an evil spirit or an evil angel right. for his mm-hmm. purposes. And the question there is, or the answer there is, absolutely. Just as God uses evil people. Uh, let, me, let me just give you a couple of quick examples. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was not a righteous man. But Nebuchadnezzar was used by God to destroy Jerusalem and Judah and take them captive. Uh, Pontius Pilate was not a righteous man, but he was used by God uh, to put Jesus on the cross. So the question of whether can God work through the actions of evil spirits is yes, there's even a story in the Old Testament where God actually asked for a spirit who'd be willing to go and put a lie in the mouth of a false prophet. Um, that should not be understood as God using evil angels or demons uh, in a manner to cause people to fall or cause people to sin. But if people have sinned, if people have rejected God, if people have rebelled against God, there's Paul himself tells the Corinthians to turn one uh, member of the church over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So if we reject God, if we rebel against God, if we persist in our sin, God can and and very well may allow demons, even angels and the such, to uh, to carry out certain actions or certain judgments against us. Um, but your, your question of whether evil angels and demons are exactly the same, it's unknown. There's no verse of the Bible that says, and all the angels who fell then became demons. It would be wonderful if there was a verse that said that. All we're trying to do here is compare Scripture with Scripture. The actions of Satan and the actions of demons and the actions of the evil angels all bear the same sort of character. They're deceptive. They're disruptive. They're divisive. They're, you know, they're they're degrading and corrupting and contaminating. So, whether they're exactly the same creature or not, they are going about the same task and the same business, which is opposing God and uh, opposing the kingdom of God and rebelling against God and opposing and trying to trying to uh, hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if they're doing the same things, if they're acting the same way, does it really matter if they're the same sort of thing? Maybe not. Maybe we should just look at their actions and not get too bogged down on how they became the way that they are. Um, Just to go back to Genesis 6 for just a moment and try to put it in the overall context of the story of Noah and the story of how the world and why the world was originally destroyed. Um, Some of you may be familiar with something called a gap theory. If you've never heard of gap theory, it's basically the idea that there was a world prior to this one that was mentioned in Genesis 1, that uh, before Genesis 1, there was another creation, another world, and that these angels and spirits were the inhabitants of that world. And that's where the rebellion took place. And because of the war and because of the destruction, that world came to an end. And God recreated the heavens and the earth beginning at Genesis 1. I just want to speak to that very quickly. The only, um, the Bible only describes one rebellion or one 
fall from grace for the angels. So if Genesis 6 is it, if that's when the, uh, the, the, how the world became contaminated and corrupted so that it had to be destroyed, um, we're all, you know, we're, we're, we would have to really kind of rethink that whole idea of a previous creation because those angels would have already been judged and already been uh, done away with. So uh, if you go into this, if you read about this online, if you buy books on this, you're going to come across a lot, lot of theories and a lot of ideas. And my counsel and my advice is to stick to the scriptures. If the scriptures can't answer it, then it's probably not meant to be answered uh, for us, at least in this in this uh, time that we are in. All right, demons, uh, evil spirits can possess human host, uh, a possessed person is still a person, but they're under the control, they're under the authority of a demon. And uh, this can manifest in a variety of physical and mental disorders, usually with a bent towards violence or lust or some kind of degradations. Demons are always looking to tear down. They're always looking to degrade and corrupt. Uh, no demon will ever make anyone better. They only, they only dehumanize their host. And if you read the stories of the demon-possessed people in the Bible, the demoniac of Gadara was basically living like an animal, like a wild beast. Uh, and that's a, you know, the, the, the man whose son was a, was possessed of a demon, uh, would, would try to throw him into the fire all the time. The Syrophoenician woman's daughter, the, uh, and, and you just all, if you just go through the stories, you see, um, even the slave girl of Ephesus that, uh, that uh, Paul uh, delivered was, uh, you know, a slave girl was reduced to uh, being a, a prostitute for prophecy uh, for her masters. So demons degrade, they uh, diminish, uh, they, they, they really are very destructive. No bargain with a demon will ever be honored. They tempt humans to sin, to rebel, to disobey. They do it by appealing to the sinful nature which already exists in us. Let me be careful. The devil cannot make you do anything. A demon cannot make you sin. However, they will provoke every ungodly desire that you have. James makes it clear that we are tempted by our own desires, um, but demons will use those desires and, and, and provoke them and, and amplify them and magnify them so that they become seemingly irresistible, whether it's anger, whether it's lust, whether it's idolatry, whether it's lying or any, any other form of greed or selfishness. The demons will use that characteristic in our nature to, to draw us away from God. And they will use deceptions to cause divisions, to hinder the work of the Spirit in the church. They are liars. They are deceiving spirits. They do not speak the truth. If they speak the truth, they do it with the intent to deceive, as they did with Christ, as Satan did with Christ in uh, the wilderness. If they're quoting scripture at you, it's it's not to be trusted because they're misapplying or misinterpreting that scripture. They use they're they're equal opportunist. They use difficulties and successes equally. Uh, they'll use a difficulty and affliction to cause you to be afraid or doubt. They'll use some good thing, some success, some victory. To, to make you boastful or proud or, or uh, believe that you don't need God's help anymore. Um, they don't much care. 
They're as happy if poverty wounds you as they are if prosperity wounds you. Uh, as long as you're ruined, their mission is complete. And um, uh, no doubt, the, the, the more um, on fire you are for God, the more devoted you are, the more likely you are to attract demonic opposition. Do I have any comments or questions uh, to this part? Um, Bishop, um, just a, a quick observation and a question as a result. Um, I have been in services where um, demon-possessed people have been delivered, and um, you would hear songs like animals, like cows and pigs, um, you know, coming out of these individuals when the demons are cast out. So I, my understanding is that they can take on the, the voices of animals or humans. I believe that, that's your question. Can they do it or? Um, um, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Okay. Uh, I, I, too, have witnessed a number of uh, bizarre manifestations when demon-possessed people are prayed for, when demons are cast out. I'm not certain how much we can trust what we see and hear. Demons are so deceptive. They are so... I had a specific time when I was praying for a, a demon-possessed person where um, the person was able to almost perfectly imitate my own voice, uh, you know, and you know, say things back to me uh, as if I was talking to myself. Um, they, are, they are so unreliable that any manifestation you see or hear to know whether it is uh, a true manifestation or not is so difficult. Uh, I, I think wisdom, I think our understanding should be to the best and, and uh, to the best of our abilities to ignore the manifestations if we can. Any manifestation is is likely to be intended to either intimidate or or cause doubt or cause confusion. Um, I, I think we you know we should try very hard not to get caught up in the manifestations and focus instead on the deliverance of the the person who is afflicted, who's possessed. Now, you know. The utmost amount of spiritual care is to be taken in dealing with any demon, but in particular with a possessed person. Um, the seven sons of Siva would, would remind you of that, that uh, an exorcism is not to be undertaken uh, unless you are absolutely, fully, totally, completely covered in the blood of Christ and full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, demons will mess with you. They will mess with your mind. They will mess with, with, with your perceptions. So um, I really don't know. I, I know you're, I, I know the, I think the question you're asking is, can we trust the manifestations that we see as being real? And I would say, yes, they're real manifestations. But the character of the manifestations is not to be trusted. Uh, and I don't know if you understand what I mean by that or not. Um, yes, I do. Yes, it's, I, I it's, get you. Okay. All right. It's the demon who's acting, it's, or it's the demon who's manifesting, but whether you're getting the true character of the demon or whether he's just putting on a show to uh, impress others, Remember, when you're casting out a demon, or when someone's casting out a demon, once the demon realizes that he's, he's got to go, his next thought is to find another host. And sometimes, uh, 
even to try to come back into the very person that has been delivered. Jesus talked about that. Jesus said, you know, you clean the house out, you sweep the floor, you make it nice and tidy, and then the demon moves back in and brings seven of his closest relatives. So um, you know, we really have uh, a... And I, I like you, sister, I have seen some stuff. <laughs> you know, you almost, you almost just, you know, really, you can get really off track if you, if you follow the manifestations. Focus on the Word, focus on the love of Christ, focus on your standing in Christ, focus on the need of the person who's delivered. Give as little attention. Demons are glory hogs. They want as much attention as they possibly can get. I, I would never. I, I, there's a Pentecostal practice of, what do they call it? I, I can't even think of it. Cleansing the atmosphere. Or, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. You know, where, where some churches will start their church services by addressing all the demons present in the atmosphere of the church. I can't even begin to describe to you how unbiblical that practice is. They want that kind of attention. They glory in that kind of attention. Uh, my goodness, if you you know you more demons will show up next Sunday than showed up this Sunday if they know that they're going to get attention. Um, you know, this, this cleansing the atmosphere stuff, this, you know, uh, casting uh, demons out of pieces of furniture or houses or, you know, we, we've, we've gotten so, I'm getting way off track here. I apologize for the rabbit hole. Um, demonology as a Christian uh, doctrine has become so, um, well, what's the word I'm looking for here? So paganized. A lot of the practices that we see regarding demons in the Pentecostal church have more in common with uh, the Greek and Roman mystery religions than they do with biblical Christianity. Uh, if you review every single case of conflict between Christ and demons or between the apostles and demons, you find none, none of this, uh, or you find almost very little of what we would call current Pentecostal practices with demons. So uh, my advice, in all honesty, focus on Jesus, focus on the Holy Spirit, be aware that demons exist, be aware that you may encounter them when you serve the Lord, and remember that you're empowered to stand against them. You shouldn't feel afraid. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, you have the armor of God. Wear the whole armor at all times, like putting on your seatbelt. Go out every day fully clothed in the armor of God. Stand against every trick and scheme of the enemy. But, you know, the line C.S. Lewis made famous about the devil is that there's there's two uh, there's two ways that the devil is is made happy. One is for us to deny his existence. That allows him to work completely in the shadows, unrecognized, and 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 carry out his agenda basically unopposed. The other is to believe he exists and be excessively curious about it. The devil loves to be the center of attention. Demons love to be the center of attention. Every book out there that mentions the devil in its title, how to beat the devil, how to do this and that, he loves that. He, he glories in it. When he can make the focus about himself and not Jesus, he is, he is supremely pleased. So I would really counsel against getting too caught up in worrying or studying, or trying to figure out how demons do this and do that. We teach about them because they're mentioned in the Bible. We teach about them because we encounter them 
in the church. We encounter them in our lives. But looking too closely or getting too caught up in it is a mistake that only serves the advantage of the enemy. And that is the end of that sermon. And I apologize for going off off the track there. Anyone else want to speak to that? And that doesn't mean I don't want you to ask questions. I, I love the questions. Um, so don't take my answers as a rebuke. I just trying to trying to separate the wheat and the chaff as we go through this. If you have questions, please ask them. While we're talking about demon possession, um, <laughs> somebody can can they uh, can someone someone that's saved and sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit can they ever in their lives uh, be possessed by a demon? Uh, uh, if you heard Roger's question, he asked if a, a saved, sanctified, full of the Holy Spirit Christian can be possessed by a demon. There is no biblical example. There's not a single case in the Bible of a righteous person being possessed by a devil. Um, some people want to point at Judas, but by the time Judas, by the time Satan entered Judas, Judas had already uh, made up his mind to betray Christ. Uh, so my answer to that is no. Now, some people point at Paul and say Paul had a messenger of Satan afflict him, and he prayed for deliverance from that affliction three times, and the Lord told him that he wasn't going to be delivered, but that the Lord's grace would be sufficient. We do need to, we do need to make a distinction between possession and affliction or harassment or oppression. The whole point of demons is to harass and oppress and afflict. That's what they do. So absolutely, you can get, uh, I think it was Peter, the Lord was speaking to, and that's a good example. That kind of sets the boundaries for this, right? The night that Jesus was betrayed, right, we have the story of Judas. Satan enters into Judas and... Judas goes to the council and sells Christ out. But that same night, we're told, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Satan has asked for you, and I have prayed for you, that when you are tested, right, when you are afflicted, when you are tried, you'll come forth as pure gold. Let me see if I can find that. That's Luke, right? That's the Gospel of Luke. Um I want to say, I want to say it's Luke uh, 22. So if we look that passage of scripture up, if I've quoted it correctly, so Luke 22. All right, so this is uh, verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So here we see the two boundaries, right? Possession in the case of Judas, right? Sifting or trying or afflicting in the case of Peter. Judas had already made up his heart to turn against Christ. He was open to the possession. Peter was. Peter loved the Lord and wanted to serve the Lord. And you have that rebuke. Remember his rebuke? Uh, when he rebuked Christ and said, you can't go to the cross. You can't, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. And Christ turns to him and says, what? Get thee behind me, Satan. So was Peter possessed? No. But Satan had provoked Peter into taking a position against Christ in that instance, even though Peter was a devoted follower of Christ. I don't know if I'm explaining that well enough or not, but Satan demons can attack, they can afflict, they can harass, they can provoke us, they can provoke the desires within us. 
but they cannot possess us if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit dwells within us, no other spirit can come and displace the Holy Spirit unless we ourselves invite the Holy Spirit to leave and invite that evil spirit to come into us. Anyone else have a thought on that? Okay. Um, we got about 10 minutes left here, so that should be long enough to talk about Satan, right? Don't you think we can cover Satan in 10 minutes? All right, so there's one particular evil spirit who was identified as the adversary. All demons are adversaries, but there's one that's called the adversary. That word adversary translates as the word Satan. The word Satan means the adversary. The word devil means the accuser. Um, the old theologians used to put it this way. There is one devil and many demons. There's one Satan. There's one particular spirit that seemingly is the chief or the head, the prince of all these rebellious spirits. I don't know how far we can push that. I really don't. It is, I think, one of the reasons that the demons of this world have not done more damage than they have is I don't think it's in their nature to cooperate with each other. Um, you know, good angels can come together like a team and work together. Bad angels tend to be very selfish. And that's why you have the prince of Greece and the prince of Persia in Daniel fighting over Daniel, right? Um, they, they, you know, they're very selfish creatures. They don't want to give up any advantages they have. But to the degree that they have a leader... That leader is called Satan. He is the, the chief prince of these demonic hosts. Um, again, another area of mystery. We're not told where Satan came from. He shows up in Genesis chapter 3 as a serpent with no explanation. Um, there's a couple of Old Testament passages Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, Ezekiel 28, that may be prophetic descriptions of Satan's fall, but they may also be something else. Um, there's no other scripture uh, that refers to either Ezekiel 28 or Isaiah 14 as relating to Satan. Um, all we really have is the statement of Christ in Luke chapter 10, where he says, I beheld Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Evidently, he was in heaven, and evidently, he got kicked out of heaven. Uh, Revelation 12 tells us that he was thrown out of heaven for instigating some sort of rebellion. Again, not given a whole lot of detail there. However, in whatever made him Satan or made him the chief adversary, he is now our most powerful enemy. He is, um, he is the enemy of the church. He is out to destroy all of God's work in this world. Uh, and he has to be resisted. The main reason we're on this earth is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in order to do that, we have to stand day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, and repudiate and resist the works of Satan. And the only way to resist him is be totally and completely submitted to God in every area of our life and giving Satan no purchase, no place, nowhere in our life to do his work. Um, now, let me say this. As powerful as Satan is, he is in no way comparable to God or Jesus. He is not the opposite of God. He is not the opposite of Christ. His authority, he's a created being. His authority is limited. Remember, he had to ask Jesus, in the scriptures we just read, he asked to add Jesus for permission to sift Peter. You know, he couldn't just go 
Adam, he had to get he had to get permission. He had to get permission to touch Job in the Old Testament book of Job. So he's not unlimited in authority. He's not an omnipotent, omniscient being like God. But he is powerful. And that power gets amplified by those systems and people that are aligned with his agenda. He's called the God of this world and the prince of this world and the princes of the power of the air, the principalities and powers of the air. His power gets amplified. It gets multiplied. It gets magnified by our social and religious and cultural um, uh, institutions. Uh, his manipulation of media, his manipulation of entertainment, his manipulation of politics, his manipulation of religious movements multiplies his power many thousands of times over. And the fact that he has so much influence in the world is truly what makes him such a formidable, a formidable enemy. But the good news is that Satan was totally, utterly, and completely defeated at the cross of Christ. He made his great move. He put all of his eggs in the kill Jesus basket. And I use eggs in basket for a good reason. Is that how we celebrate Easter? Eggs in basket. <laughs> he put all of his eggs in the kill Jesus and take the kingdom basket, right? That's the parable that Jesus told. Come, let us kill the son and then we can take the kingdom for ourselves. He put all of his moves there. He marshaled all of his forces, all the hosts of hell, all the demonic forces came against Christ there and were utterly, completely, totally defeated and made a public spectacle of. And they are now powerless to prevent the kingdom of Christ from, they were powerless to keep the kingdom from being established. That's what Jesus told Peter, the gates of hell will not prevail, will not prevent Jesus from accomplishing his work, and they couldn't, and they're powerless to prevent the ultimate victory of the kingdom of Christ. So um, his destiny and all who follow him is to be cast into the lake of fire. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. It wasn't created for human beings. Uh, the only reason humans will end up there is because they have joined the demonic rebellion. If you act like a demon, you will share a demon's fate. And that alone should be enough to motivate us to uh, stand against everything demonic in our world. Do you have any comments or questions on Satan? Um, Pastor, would you say or conclude that the whole demon demonic activities and and identification actually started from the fall of Lucifer? Um, that is a common interpretation. Lucifer, in a lot of Christian literature, is um, used as another name for Satan. Okay. We are not told scripturally whether Lucifer and Satan are in fact the same being. The word Lucifer means uh, light bearer. May give us a glimpse, if it is Satan, may give us a glimpse at what Satan's original position may have been. Um, he may have been one of those lights of heaven. That was uh, created to glorify, to magnify. Uh, some have tried to argue that he was sort of heaven's worship leader based on Ezekiel 28. Again, you know, we get around, we go off into speculations at some of these points because the Bible doesn't address it. The Bible doesn't address Lucifer's role, doesn't address whether Lucifer and Satan are the same being. But Jesus himself, and this is critical, and this is, I think what your, what your ultimate point was driving at, sister, is, is accurate. Jesus himself calls the devil the, the original sinner. 
He was the murderer from the beginning. He was the liar from the beginning. He was the one who introduced sin into God's creation. He was the one who ruined what was good and perfect and righteous. The fact that he was able to recruit Adam and Eve, the fact that he was able to recruit other angels or spirits to join him, the fact that he has been able to recruit, you know, I guess we'd say, what, a majority of the world's people today into carrying out his work and his agenda uh, really does speak. And, and, and I want to make clear, I, I know I, I was a little harsh earlier, and I, I want to make clear, uh, demonic activity must be addressed. We are living in a demonic culture. We are living in a demonic political and social environment. Um, you don't have to look too far. Uh, the, the, the number of abortions, the, the dehumanization of, of mankind, the elimination of gender, the elimination of, of, of um, anything reflective of God, you know, to the point where we're not even allowed to call God a he anymore. This, this, is, this is demonic. This is the devil's work. Is he doing it directly? In some cases, but most of his work is indirect. He's taking human pride. He's taking human greed. He's taking the desire for humans that humans have to be worshipped, to be magnified, to be glorified. And he's simply playing on that and creating absolute havoc uh, and and not just destroying the culture of America, because that culture was compromised, you know, hundreds of years ago, but every social order. There's no place on the planet. Look what he's doing in Venezuela. Look what he's doing in China. Look what he's doing in Russia. Look what he's doing in Muslim countries. Look what he's doing in Europe, in Africa. Everywhere you turn, the demonic is not just there, but it's predominant. It's prevalent. So we, we, you know, when we read scriptures like having done all stand, you know, Paul wasn't writing about some pie in the sky culture where Christianity is supreme and you got this odd demon over here in some dark corner somewhere. Paul was writing at the height of the Roman Empire, a demonic empire an empire that required its citizens to worship Caesar as God, to offer blood sacrifice, to, to enslave uh, millions and millions of people. So uh, I, I am in no way telling us ignore the demons, don't pretend they're not there. No, they have to be addressed. Satan must be opposed. He must be resisted. We must resist him with the last ounce of our strength. We must resist him in every arena. We must resist him most of all in his work in the church. The doctrines of demons, which have become so prominent and prevalent in the church, have to be exercised and have to be shouted down. So our work against the demonic is real. It's ongoing. It's necessary. Every time we can push the darkness back a little bit further, we allow a little more light to shine into the lives of people who are oppressed. All around us, there are women who have been bent over 18 years because of the oppression of Satan. There are parents with children who are afflicted or tormented. There are children who have become highly suggestible to demons through abuse, through, through the, the, the terrible circumstances they've been put through in their lives uh, with molestations, with physical and verbal abuse. Demons feed on these things. They use these as doorways, as entrance points into the lives of people, and they will torment them with drug use, with 
with sexual uh, confusion and corruption. And so our, our work, our task is enormous. The, the reign of Satan and the cultures that we are living in is almost unopposed. But we're here. We're full of the Holy Ghost. Greater is he that is in us. And we must stand for truth and righteousness and the love of God and the love of Christ. And we must not cede or surrender one inch of ground that God has given us. All right, that's all I've got on angels and demons, unless you have another question. All right, we'll close it out here. And uh, I appreciate it again. I love the questions. These last two classes, you've asked more questions than you have all year. Where have you been? I, I love the questions and the challenges. This is, what, uh, this is what makes these classes so enriching for me and I hope for all of you. So please, please. Uh, keep those questions coming. All right. Have a good night, everybody. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.